Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. So today we are going through the Torah reading called Achare Mot, Achare Mot, which means after the death, and it covers uh, Leviticus chapters 16 through 18. And uh, you can see all the various studies we've done on this particular topic at hello.info slash p29. And uh, that will be important because we're going to go through some material here pretty quickly today as a bit of a refresher. Now, we've gone through this same material in great detail in times past. So you need to hit the rewind button or whatever. We've got lots of notes and descriptions of the things we're going to be talking about in a certain section here today on uh, what the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur is all about. So usually we have the two sections together. We usually... Um, in a lot of years, these are combined, Acharemot and Kedoshim, those two sections, which cover basically from Leviticus 16 through Leviticus 20. So uh, this year, uh, we're, they split them up. So we're going to be doing them in succession. So today we're doing 16 through 18, and then next Shabbat we'll be doing 19 and 20. But really they go together. So that's why you'll see here as we kind of note the overarching themes that are these really fit the discussion of all of these chapters together. So some of these things, uh, one general theme of these is really to elevate. We saw this with the chapter we just read here of chapter 18, that you, your worship and your behavior are to be elevated above the practices of the nation. Now, is very... Very, uh, yes, uh, Daniel. That principle of elevating is the same, same concept when God selected clean animals versus unclean. He elevated yes. the clean animals. Their behavior is different. Behavior is everything. Yes, behavior is different. And so your behavior should be different. And that was like when we've gone over and uh, when we get to, oh, actually, when we went through the section related to clean and unclean animals earlier on in Leviticus, uh, Veikra, we talked about that and the lessons you get from Acts chapter 10 with Peter's vision of the sheet. The, the, and you see that the punchline of that vision is not that everything is being brought down to the common level. Rather, those that were formerly common are brought up. We call that making them holy, separating them from the common, bringing them into the realm of God. So that is actually... Part of what we're going to be talking about here today is the, the separation, the making holy, setting apart for the service of God. So we see in some of what is talked about there about presenting these offerings only, you see that in chapter 17, that transition from just as you see like in Genesis, they're offering it in the field or wherever they were, now is going to be centralized in the Mishkan, in the tabernacle. That is where they're going to be presented. And you can see with the discussion that follows why that is. You're making a distinction from the nations. That's what the nations do. 
They have temples, yes, but then they also have their home idols and their home shrines and their home this and that and the other. In fact, that's what you find archaeologically. They found those in Israel. They'll find that people did what the pagans did. They made little versions of the temple and they had them in their house as a shrine just like the pagans did so that they would worship like they were like the pagans would worship. So the Lord is saying, no, you don't do that. Because one of the key distinctions, you might have caught that when we were going through Leviticus 16 with that um, aspect of that the Lord was in the midst of the people, and he says, I'm in the midst of your impurities. So that is why there needs to be emphasized that there is the separation. Because one of the things that comes through with paganism, you see it related with the Greek gods, with the Roman gods. After a while, the people walked away with them because they were just as corrupt as everybody else. They were lowered down in everyone's eyes because they were just as, you know, you, you read those myths and they, they go on and you're like, I wouldn't, if that's the way they behave, I don't want to have anything to do with them. And that's what a lot of people um, thought that as well. You know, they're stealing your wives, they're stealing your daughters, you know, it's just terrible behavior that's going on. So you would want, yeah, you want a separation from them <laughs> instead of being closer to them. You want to keep them away. And that's what they ended up doing a lot was keeping them away. And eventually they got rid of their temples in, in their midst and they fell into disuse over time. So the lesson there is, is that that is why there is a note of a separation. The God of Israel, the creator of heaven and earth, is other than the earth. This is not like Mother Earth, where we just talked about that last Shabbat, because you know, we're coinciding with this uh, modern worship of the earth as a deity in and of itself. Well, you are of the earth, so thus you can protect Mother Earth by doing your thing for Mother Earth. Well, that is a way that a lot of pagan religions operate. You do something for the realm of the deity by your participation in it. And this is a caricature, we'll be getting to this in a moment, of what the Day of Atonement is. Some of our brothers and sisters in the body of Messiah have gotten this idea that just like the pagans do, so thus what Yom Kippur is. You offer the goat, you pull the handle on the celestial slot machine, and out come the blessings. Out comes your forgiveness. Well, that is not the way it operates, because we're like, okay, well, Old Testament is about that. You do this special ritual, and then you're covered. Well, we don't do that stuff anymore. So we'll be getting back to that in just a little bit. But one of the key other things that we see in this, in Leviticus 17 also, is this aspect about the life being in the blood. That's an important aspect in and of itself in today's, today's culture about life being in the blood, respecting the life of, of animals. Now, that is a whole conversation in and of itself, how we moved from, as it's described in Genesis, where every herb of the field, the, basically the green things, basically vegan diet is what's described in Genesis. But we don't have a vegan diet today. And what we saw here, here in Leviticus, what you see in Genesis chapter 6, with the flood, 
and six through nine and after the flood. And then they're saying, okay, well then before I gave you every green thing, now I give you certain animals. The thing is, is that's with, you see with that slight little thing that's mentioned just in passing, well, if you spill the blood, make sure you cover it with dirt. Make sure you bury it because that idea that you're passing across, this is not some sort of pagan idea that there's actual life in the blood. No, you just keep in mind that you are ending the life of a creature. Now, that creature, just like it mentions in right after the flood, mentions in Genesis, that if you end a you know, if you end the life of another person what life for life because you have to take into account this is not just like the animals just because we've moved into the realm of animals are now allowable for you to use as food that doesn't mean you translate that people are animals so then just as you can end the life of an animal you can end the life of a person no Animals and people are on completely different levels and can different planes. Now, one of the things we see in the Messianic era is the look of a return to that point. But one of the things that is a reminder, we'll be getting to that passage there in um, Hebrews chapter 9, but there is this annual reminder of sin, of transgressions, of iniquity of the shedding of blood. We are not in Eden anymore. We came from Eden. We will be going back to Eden, but we are not in Eden now. A lot of people over time have been trying to recreate Eden. They, that's why it was <laughs> kind of <laughs> um, derisively called utopia, meaning unobtainable, the unobtainable land. Because... Eden is not obtainable now. People have tried to make Eden on earth and have failed because you have the sinful nature in there. The sinful nature towards sloth, towards malice, towards wickedness, all these things that will fight against it. Well, if you want to create utopia, but your neighbor doesn't want to create utopia, what happens? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the, whoever has the power who still wants utopia will then lord it over the other person who doesn't want utopia to then try to bring about utopia in the process. So that is why it's hugely important to remember this. Uh, yes, Alex. I just wanted to get back to the, the alien. Uh, I guess um, a major separation between uh, Judaism and Christianity uh, is kind of overlooked there because Jews were supposed to make it clear it's a kind of a proselytizing which they don't do much of at all that uh, says, hey, the alien in your land really needs to they need to observe this too. Those who surge, sojourn among you. So that does go out. Uh, again, we talk about the Hasid. They, they really like to look after their own. Although they do acknowledge that you have to treat your fellow human being. Uh, there was, that was something that came up one of those little minor holidays this past week, I think. Yeah, uh, correct though. But that's that's one of uh, the reasons why you have you have uh, some uh, sects that will 
continue to do outreach to other people mm-hmm. um, because of this idea that, yes, you not only find those who have lapsed and lapsed from their, the belief that they grew up with, but also that you want to bring other people in. But by the same token, the church should be looking back to, oh, well, yeah, we're the aliens and we should be doing that. Yeah. Unless God kind of so, went away at that point. Yeah, it's, again, it's right? basically the idea That's of the that old stuff. This is, how, this is how the community of God works. And this is what the community of God does. This is not just like, you know, this is what you do over here, but you're in the, the land that God has set aside and you can do your thing over here and I'm. You know, there's the whole um, tabernacle thing going on over here, and it's got nothing to do with you over here. The idea is that in the land that God is going to set aside, this is going to be the way things are. And you see that when you look in Revelation and you read it in the prophets, that when the day of the Lord comes, there is going to be a transition. You see that mentioned in Zechariah, the last few chapters of it. There's that adjustment period where the world has got to then realize you know the the way of the Canaanite, so to speak. That's that those days are over. That's not going to be the way the world is going to work anymore. So you have to then choose which direction do you want to go. Do you want to go with the career of heaven and earth, or do you want to still go with the ways that are fading away that won't continue? So some other kind of key aspects that we have in this particular section of chapter 16 through 20 of Leviticus is about respect, about respecting the Lord's boundaries and those of other people. You saw those really emphasized in um, the chapter that was kind of, you could say, squeamish in its details. Uh, But you see it also emphasized in Leviticus 16 that this part of the presence of the Lord, especially on the Day of Atonement, you have to respect the presence of the Lord. Because it starts out in Leviticus 16, hearkening back to Leviticus 10 with Aharon's sons and how they did not respect the presence of the Lord and how they approached the presence of the Lord. So then they, the fire came out from the presence of the Lord and it says it consumed them. So the emphasis in Leviticus 16 of the Day of the Atonement is that you have to respect the presence of the Lord and how you approach it. And as we're going to get on to the next section and the next Torah reading about Leviticus 19, we got the great uh, golden rule as it, as it is, love your neighbor as yourself, originally from Leviticus 19. Then also about Leviticus 18, about the boundaries of relationships and other people's boundaries. Now, the sad part is, is that it, you, even just a few years ago, you would say, well, this is bizarre behavior. What we see in Leviticus 18, it's just, it's totally bizarre. You may have even heard about it and read about it in some Roman or Greek uh, text when they talk about that. It's long, people don't, well, they're doing it today. <laughs> they're doing it today. And they, as we mentioned last time, there is a concerted effort to teach our children that what you read in Leviticus 18 is okay, and that you are archaic to think otherwise, which is a very strange thing. Just a few years ago, you would think that what we read in Leviticus 18 is archaic. We don't, nobody does that anymore. Who would even think of such a thing? Yet, 
now we're right here again. So, it gets on to an interesting question, which, uh, yes. Oh, hold, hold on just a moment. He, he has a question or comment behind you. History repeats itself. Yes, it sure does. Well, it's interesting that, that um, someone notes that history repeats itself, and sometimes it doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. So if you know what the original was, you will catch the rhyme. If you don't know what happened before, you will not understand the rhyme. Yes. Yeah, Larry. When he says our, the person who does these things will be cut off from his people, what is it exactly what does he mean by that? Is that forever? Are they dead? Or? How, however long you want to be separated. But it's like can repent, the, in other words. The, the emphasis is, is this behavior cannot continue here. Mm-hmm. So you can then decide how long you want that to go. Paul gives a very good illustration in, in his uh, second letter, first and second letter of Corinthians about the, uh, one of the, the members of his congregation who is actually engaged in behavior in Leviticus 18 in the congregation. And the congregation was treating this as, hey, we're so tolerant. We, we tolerate behavior like in Leviticus 18 because we're so tolerant and loving. But Paul just says, uh, no. Leviticus 18 is still valid. For the sake of himself and the congregation, he's got to go. And it says, a very interesting thing, what he, said, he advises is send him out so that Hasatan, Satan, will sift him over. But then he himself will be saved in the process. And then, thankfully, we get the second letter where we see that, yeah, there was the reconciliation of this brother back into the congregation. Yes. Yeah, I think uh, in my mind, uh, it was kind of incremental how these things are happening again. But, <laughs> but I think I've already heard of someone getting a, uh, marrying a chimp or something. So let's just assume everything that you just read is going to happen again. Someone's yes. going to try to pull it off, and it's happening fast that way. Yep, so, that it is. Uh, we'll get the shock over with right now. Mm-hmm. So the question then, which is probably one you'll hear from our other brothers and sisters in the body of Messiah, is you know why do we need to celebrate the Day of Atonement since Yeshua has already atoned for our sins? So that's a very interesting question. So let's dive into that just a little bit more. So you see that both the followers of Messiah Yeshua and uh, others in conventional Judaism have struggled with this. And followers of Messiah have struggled with understanding why that this practice is still important after the death and resurrection of Yeshua. We just celebrated the death and resurrection with Pesach and Bikarim or first fruits. We just celebrated that recently and see that that was not only foretold but also memorialized in the things that came before. The things that came before in the law of Moses were a whole, all part of what happened in the Gospels and what we see in the Gospels and what we see with what's called Passion Week that fit in a lot with what was uh, said going to happen. Now, you also see in conventional Judaism and also some in the body of Messiah who struggled with what then do you do with these memorials such as Yom Kippur when there is no temple? 
you know, our brothers and sisters in the body of Messiah will say, well, since the temple is gone, that was a big hint to stop doing this stuff. That that became passe once the temple went down. Now, in conventional Judaism, you also they struggled as well for a few hundred years until they really codified what to do with no temple around. So you see that what you see in today, when you see in the prayer book of the modern Yom Kippur service, that was the answer of what then do you do when you have no temple? How then do you move forward with that? So you see that if anything, the believers in Yeshua's blood and uh, blood of the new covenant that covers sins, transgressions, and iniquity have even more reason to observe the memorial of the work of the one who was and the one who is and the one who is to come. And we'll see more of that. Yeah, we have a comment or a question over here. It, it, because, it, because Christians or believers in Yeshua's blood, because their method actually works, it's really important to observe it. Right? We actually have a method that actually does cover those things. And not like, well, you pointed out that in, in, in the, the Sudur for the Yom Kippur service, is dominantly designed for, well, they're trying to take parts of the concept of Yom Kippur and internalize them, which is absolutely right. That's what you're supposed to do anyway. But in, in Christianity, on top of just internalizing them, our method of Messiah's blood actually works for it. It actually functionally works as well. So it's, 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 it's a dual importance in any believer of Messiah. That that's, it, not only is it to internalize, but also internalize plus I have the tool that fixes it. As opposed to Judaism is stuck with, I internalize and all I can do is repent in whatever capacity I can because I don't have Messiah's blood in, in, in their belief system. They can internalize, they get half it's still there, which is right. But in, in, in Christian philosophy, we have both parts. So you need both parts so you, you can internalize it and then actually address it, actually yeah. fix it. That's the problem. But yes, and you see that this has been something that's even been acknowledged by a number of Jewish sages over time. Like Maimonides had said that like, if you are coming to present your offering and you are not fully in what is happening with your offering and fully understanding that this is really you going into the altar and then yourself, your life with the blood of your offering going in ahead of you, if you do not realize that that is really you, then your offering is meaningless, which is exactly what the prophets noted. Isaiah notes that. David notes that, Psalm 51. We see that regularly in the prophets, that if you are not, <laughs> the big buzzword today is present, if you are not present there, showing up yourself with all of you are, not just going through the motions to offer your gift, then your gift is meaningless for what it is that you are supposedly trying to do. Whether it's a shalomim offering to a peace offering or a burnt offering or a sin offering, you end up with a situation like Cain faced with his offering. It won't be accepted, which is what the prophets warn about, that if you treat 
the the operations and uh, what are talked about in the Torah as a the way the pagans do that you just offer it and it gets paid because you you paid the price and then you it's like a transaction well the worship of the creator of heaven and earth is not a transaction because we'll note the price to pay is far higher than we could ever offer which is one of the problems with our thinking such ways yes um i i I think this has meaning for what we're talking about with with um uh, yom kippur the uh the thing is that most people don't understand the difference between i got this from monte judah by the way most people don't understand the difference between redemption and salvation they think it's the same and it's it's according to him it's not because they were redeemed when the angel flew over their house and didn't come in and kill them. But they were saved when they got across that sea. Mm, yes. Yeah, correct. That's, that's where they, they talk about uh, being, being uh, declared not guilty and then also being brought out of where your situation is. That's why it's always important when we go through and celebrate Passover that this is an important memorial for us as well because we were taken out of our house of slavery. But first, the destroyer of God was blocked at our door. Then we were delivered. And then we were delivered to the mountain where we got the testimony of God. That sequence is hugely important. So let's just go through a very quick recap here for any of those that need a good recap. First off, what is Yom Kippur? And then get back to our question of why believers in Yeshua should still care. So first start with what Yom Kippur is. Now, this is presented here in the context of this where we are in Leviticus. And this section of the law of holy living runs from chapter 16 of Leviticus through Chapter 25, big section of the book of Leviticus. Well, how do you live? Okay, all this first section of Leviticus is talking about how you are set apart, how God sets you apart. Well, then now, how do you live as someone who is set apart? What do people who are set apart live like? The point is, you are not a yo-yo. You know, you don't just kind of get thrown down into the realm of the comma and then yanked back up again and thrown down and yanked back up again. You know, on, on Shabbat, God pulls you back up and then or after Shabbat, he throws you back down into the world again and then back up and down and up and down and up and down. You're just up and recirc- recirculating back and forth from the land of what's common into the land that is set apart. So a big discussion here in Vayikra is about how to live separately. And we see the instructions of Mashiach, one of his final messages to his students is, you know, I do not want to take you out of the world, but to protect you in the world. That is an important part, and that is what these lessons are. So here in Vayikra, the section that we're looking at, the laws of holy living, uh, stretches over several, several sections here, and as we'll get into the next 
uh, part of it with chapters 19 and 20, take a look at more about civil behavior, social justice, more of that has become horribly uh, horribly disrupted as a term of social justice, but also about, well then, if people don't want to live at peace with other people, what do you do about it? How do you bring these people back in? And that's what chapter 20 gets into a bit. So some other things about Yom Kippur itself. And we have some key lessons of Yom Kippur is that just like in the garden, the creator of heaven and earth wants to be at one with us or together. So we see it mentioned in chapter 16 that the Lord is living in the midst of our impurities. So if the Lord wants to be at one together living among us with the impurities, what then has to happen? Deal with the impurities, right? Deal with the impurities. That was kind of the, it was the, the topic of last Shabbat. Well, if you want to say slay all the wicked, what do you do? Do you just basically drop a nuclear bomb, so to speak, on the planet and just nuke everybody? Well, okay, I guess we took care of everybody. Yes, all the wicked are gone. Or do you do what the lesson of Yom Kippur is and say, well, we've got sins, transgressions, and iniquities that are keeping the people away from the presence of God. They cannot coexist. So then what do we need to do? We need to cover sins, transgressions, and iniquities to pull the people back in. So cover them and then transform. Because like we are talking about with the yo-yo, that's not the way God wants us to live. Just, you know, in the world, out of the world, in the world, out of the world. Just back and forth and back and forth. Rather, we start seeing this gulf being bridged with Avraham. Called out Avraham to come out to the world. To start coming in to settle and carve out a land, basically a beachhead in the world. Where the kingdom of God will make a great landing in the world to bring its heavy resources to play into the world. And the sanctuary was to be this great place, the center place of this beachhead. And we see that mentioned here with the centralizing of the offerings. The offerings are going to be centralized in one place. There's going to be one focal point, and that one focal point is going to have the place, the presence of God, but also how you get into the presence of God and how you come out of where you were before and are cleansed, covered of all of the sins, transgressions, and iniquities so that the one who lives in the midst of the impurities is then able to be at one with people who are pure, or you should say purified. So that once, kind of like, think of it like a, like a water filter, so to speak. That's when you start sucking up water through the water filter. The filter's job is to do what? Get the impurities. So you would know something is wrong if you have a muddy pond and you start pumping water and then it comes out muddy into your glass. You would know you have a problem, that the filter is not working. But if you put it down into murky water and you start pumping away and then clean water comes into your bottle and then you drink it. Wow, that's great. That's 
well, you look at where it started, and then you see what's in your, your jar, and you're like, wow, that's fantastic. Well, that's been purified. And that is what all point of the Mishkan, the, the, the tabernacle, is supposed to do. Yeah, um, Piran, you have a comment over here. Um, and fire is a purifier. Does that factor in? Fire? Fire. Fire is a purifier. Yes, yeah, burns, burns the stuff up. And one of the things that is talked about there about refining metals as well, if you've got lots of uh, other stuff that's in the metals, that refining process out of getting the stuff out of the metals, that is really <laughs> quite interesting, especially with some metals is that you can actually start scooping off. I think that's... Uh, there, there are some great illustrations and object lessons that the creator has put into, put into his creation. The whole thing of like ice floating on top of water and the impurities floating, so to speak, on top of molten metal. That I think is a, is a great illustration of um, bringing, we, we always say bringing stuff to the surface of the things that we want to deal with. Well, the the nuclear bomb the purified <laughs> wow look at that. whole people want the so called nuclear option yes <laughs> there we go Whew. all right yes so she she brought it up the fire is that so the whole point being that there are multiple methods that God uses to purify something um, and it doesn't matter what 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 the scenario is he can obviously choose which one it may may be and and. I may recognize one method and think this is the way that God works with me. This is how I get my, 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 my garbage out, all that kind of thing. And it may be a completely different method I wouldn't recognize with someone else. God may choose a different method with Joe Schmo across the street to purify him. That I would say, well, that won't work. That doesn't work. Because for me, it doesn't work. But not necessarily for him. There are multiple ways which God can take care of these things, and he's no, not, his hand is not short in the style or what tool he chooses to use. He uses water for certain things to clean them. He uses fire for certain things to clean them. He uses blood for certain things to clean them, which you think, well, that's bizarre, but that's, he uses whatever tool he says, this is the appropriate tool for this individual or this thing at this moment in time, and that's got to be right. And so that we can see here that um, we can be really confident that heaven is covering over our sins, transgressions, and iniquities, and the work of the great high priest. So just as and we've talked about the, the uh, Hebrew way of uh, reasoning called kal v'chomer, or light and heavy, so when you say okay i accept this simpler or lighter idea well then how much more is a much more significant or heavier notion and this the what you see in the letter to hebrews there in the apostolic writings that if the high priest is representing what god is doing then how much more is what the high priest is a type or a shadow of actually able to do not having to offer things for himself. And that's then a key point of this is that Yom Kippur is an anniversary of Yeshua's covering work. So not just something that happened a long time ago, 
but it is a, a reminder of the covering work that Yeshua is doing. So with that, uh, just brief recap, we've gone into these details a lot in times past, but we can circle back. Uh, that was the one cliche that they're supposed to die this year, circle back. <sighs> Let's not circle back to that cliche, but rather if you have any questions on that, we can go back to them at the end here. But Let's tackle this more perplexing question and something that may be helpful for our brothers and sisters in considering this celebration of Yom Kippur as we look forward to it here. Here we are, just uh, we've got a few more months to go before we get to the seventh month, but something to talk with our brothers and sisters about. And you know, why do you celebrate Yom Kippur? I thought that was just this Jewish thing that died with the temple when it was destroyed. So why should believers still care about Yom Kippur? Well, really are four reasons, and we'll be drilling down into these. Yeshua said so. God said, hey, live by my words, and that the Moedim are shadows, and that the New Covenant promise that we have, the 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 promise that we see of the prophecy of the new covenant. So when Yeshua said, this is, my, this is the blood of the new covenant, the new covenant in my blood, hearkening back to what the prophets foretold that the new covenant was going to be. So let's drill down on these some more. First off, Yeshua told us that the words of Torah would not be abolished. So one of the key phrases, when everyone asks me a question, well, why something of the Torah, should we still do it? Well, one of the key things is this passage here from Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 19, is part of the preamble, the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount, for most Christians, is what? One of the most significant things that you find in the Gospels, Right? One of the most significant things, it all packs everything together on these, the, these teachings. And the preamble to this is, right before this, you have what? The beginning part of chapter 5 of Matthew. We call it the Beatitudes. Or what you say is the equivalent that you have in Hebrew, and you see it a lot in the Psalms, is Ashrei, or happy are you. Happy are you if you do this. Happy are you if you do that. Blessed are you if you do this. Blessed are you if you do that. So apart right after that preamble of the Beatitudes, you'll find this section here. It talks about salt and light. And we get into this preface right before you kick on into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Here in Matthew verses 17 through 19. Do not think I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and then teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And our brothers and sisters will say, well, yeah, it says fulfill. There you go. Well, uh, we've addressed this before, but the short answer is, is that when you lift the hood of the Gospels, 
the Greek word underneath what's translated in this version as fulfill is a form of the verb pleru. And pleru is, you'll see it in lexicons, it means to, to complete or to fill up, to bring to its fullness. Now, one of the other curious places that helps explain, that's why if you get a uh, type of a lexicon that will show you where certain words in both Greek and Hebrew, where else the same word shows up, that helps you understand the meanings of the words in greater detail. Yes. Do you ever refer to that supposed, uh, the Aramaic Bible, the Syriac, is that it? Yes, the Syriac Bible. What, what, what is it? Um, Say in Aramaic, maybe. Well, the thing to always remember about the, the, uh, the Peshitta, which is one of the, uh, the Syriac Aramaic versions, is that it is a translation of a Greek original. As you'll see, that there are certain variants of the Greek text that we have that the, Syri- that the Syriac and the Peshitta follow those. And that's why when you, there's, there's a work that's called the, um, the Comfort Text Commentary. And it helps you, it goes verse by verse through, throughout the apostolic scriptures, and it will show you which manuscript these things came from and how many different manuscripts this given verse comes from. And all the variants uh, that each of these um, various manuscripts have in it and where they come from. So... Uh, that's how they've, over time, been able to piece them together from all of the thousands and thousands and thousands of manuscripts that are available of the apostolic writings to piece them back and to find where these variants came from in the text and to see, well, which ones date later, which ones date earlier. And then the preference is for the ones that date earlier. And then you can see for the ones that date later where things where marginal, often what happens is, a marginal comment ends up in the text itself that will show up later on. So thus, the linguist with some of the more later translations that are lend more toward the literal end of it, they have backed a lot of those commentaries of marginal stuff out. They'll usually keep them in a marginal, in the margins back again, or a footnote or something. But that's the, the short answer for that. So with Pleru, another key place where the word pleru that's translated here is fulfill in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. That is found in a place where Yeshua comes to be baptized. Comes down to Yohanan, down at the river, and Yohanan protests. Says, well, no, you need to wash me. You need to mikvah me. Why are you coming to me? I should be the one getting washed by you. But the Mashiach said, no, you must do this to pleru, all righteousness. Now, if we were to translate that, as many do here in Matthew 5, 17, as to abolish or to bring to an end, what are we saying? That you bring to an end all righteousness? Or, with the more general sense, you bring to its fullness all righteousness. So you take that more general idea of bringing to fullness back into 5.17, and you're saying, I did not come to abolish, but to bring to its fullness. The second witness to what you have in Matthew 5.17 through 19 is found over in Luke chapter 16, verses 16 and 17. So 
if there are some that will say, well, Matthew 5, 17, that was a one-off in one of the Gospels. Maybe that was some sort of scribal error or something. Well, you see the same thing illustrated here in a different way in Luke chapter 16, verses 16 and 17. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. So, seeing, saying something very similar to what we saw in Matthew chapter 5, is that the law and the prophets are not something that is going to be coming to an end. And because one of the other ways you can say the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John is that preposition that's translated here is until in the New American Standard can also be translated as as far as or up through by saying that Yochanan, basically the 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 um, the message being brought here is that Yohanan is a part of the what was proclaimed by the law and the prophets, meaning Yohanan is not saying something different from the law and the prophets. He is in the same vein. And that's why it goes on and says, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke or letter of the law to, to fail, meaning that Yohanan is not saying something different than the law and prophets. Yohanan is the herald of Yeshua, the herald of the Mashiach. So thus, Mashiach and Yohanan are in the same vein and the same message as the law and the prophets moving forward. And another point on this about Yeshua telling us that the words of the Torah would not be abolished is that, frankly, we follow the Messiah, not Paul or any of the apostles. Messiah's words take precedence. We are followers of Messiah, not followers of Paul, because Paul himself puts that quite clear in a couple of places here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, where he says, Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So, who do we follow? Yes, Larry. Well, the, uh, even that in that Matthew 5 statement, it contradicts itself if the, what we call the conventional Christian understanding is, because he says, until it's fulfilled, and then he says later on that, um, uh, that there's a, a penalty for it, and it'll... I forget now, all of a sudden I forgot what I was talking about, so never mind. <laughs> yeah, about least, least and greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So are, if you're going to teach the law and the prophets, greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And those that are not teaching that, least in the kingdom of heaven. So that's one of the things that Messiah <laughs> tells us to not engage in, is to engage in words of condemnation. So we should not be uh, throwing about the becoming least in the kingdom of heaven, but we just know that we don't want the Messiah to be calling us least in the kingdom of heaven. 
So we should not be striving for the low end. You know, say, let's see, what do I need to pass? Is it a D or a, a D minus? D minus. I'll, get, I'll get in the kingdom of heaven in a D minus. Yeah, there we go. Yes, Larry. I was talking, I was listening to something about that the other day, and I always wondered, what is least of the kingdom of heaven? Isn't the kingdom of heaven a great place anyway? They said, but there's a bunch of people in the kingdom of heaven. When the kingdom of heaven is going on, you know, the actual kingdom, physical kingdom, who are outside the gates and not allowed in. So, I mean, that, that means they're going to die. They're probably the ones that are going to only live to be 100. Right, so exactly. So you, you may be there, but you may not be getting, getting any, any quality from it, and you may be the ones that are going to get squashed later on. Yeah, it's... The, so that would be the least. The point is, is that we would want to be... Inside in the gates. Greater toward the kingdom of heaven and had, have um, the master say, well done, good and faithful servant. Some people say, well, I'm, I, might, I might not be very high, but at least I'll be there. Yeah, but maybe it's not a good thing to just be there. Well, the, I mean, the point is, is that when Messiah is specifically saying what will be the dividing line between the greatest and the least, then we should at least be g- going toward what he said uh, that is lends to the greatest side. Yes, Rose, Eva. Well, comment? I think I've mentioned this scripture before, but it bears repeating. In Isaiah uh, 42, 21, the Lord is well pleased for his righteousness sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. So yep. that's what Christ did. He came to magnify the law and mm-hmm. make it honorable. He didn't do away with it. And that's, that's a great way to be talking about magnifying, magnifying the word. Yes, Alex. Harry was starting to talk about, we just talked over it again, the fulfillment. and, and with modern English, it's a bad choice of words. You call the factory, hey, oh, that's, we're done. It's been fulfilled. What? Well, where, you know, it's, it's off the plate. But so what Larry was saying, well, he didn't say I've come, didn't come to abolish the law to do away with the law. So there could have been a better Greek word. Fulfill in this modern day is done, it's yeah. gone. Order fulfilled. So, it, it, yes, Pleru can can be interpreted as finishing, correct, fulfilling, like we think it is. But the other other version, other uh, meaning of it is to fill it full. Right, and th- and that's that's why it's um, <laughs> some some people will engage in basically Strong's concordance. Um, multiple choice is you'll get a concordance and it'll say the various shades of meaning and they'll just pick their favorite one for a given place well the one thing that you see when you go through a lexicon is that you see the shades of meaning across all the places where it's used and just know that it can have that meaning across the various places that it's used so one one effective way to get the idea of what a given word in Greek or Hebrew means, is to look at all the various places where it's used and then see, well, what do all of these things have in common together? The three most important things about the words? Right? Context, context, and context. Context. Yeah, which helps like in English or whatever your native language is 
to have the context of a word. You don't understand it, so you try to figure it out. And actually, with some of the of the words that you have in Hebrew, you, they're like used once. But thankfully, they are used once in the Psalms, which is written a lot in what is come to be called like parallelisms, where you will have, you'll see it often throughout Scripture. It says it one way, and it says it nearly identically. You know, like, well, why did you just repeat yourself? Well, thankfully, it is in there that way, because oftentimes you'll have a word that we don't know with followed by a word that we do know. So you're like, okay, well, they seem to be saying the same thing. So that word there must mean something of what that other word means or in some similar shade to what it means. So yes, context is important and it can help you understand the, the meaning of specific words and also how the words are used in any given place. So yeah, that's hugely important. So then we go also into this other um, statement here about why believers should care about Yom Kippur, that Messiah quoted from the Torah to the adversary, that we are to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, quoting specifically from Deuteronomy 8.3, which is here. And it says, He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And one of the important things that we see in Deuteronomy is this retelling for that second generation that's going to enter the land is here is the explanation for the wanderings, where the wandering in the wilderness was for. A part of it was about trust building, or we also call it faith building, building our faith in God. So building our faith that when the Lord is saying that he will provide, that he will provide. And he did provide. Every morning, there was what? Daily bread. And then twice as much on the sixth day. And then none on the seventh day. So you could definitely live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Because this daily bread was there when he said he would be there. And that was dependable. And then you see where it's quoted here, uh, back when Yeshua is talking about, the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So, something that was quoted to the adversary, that this is something dependable. When the God is saying something and has said something, these are words that you can depend upon. You know, I, I've come from a religious tradition where large sections of, there tend to be the prophet sections, are like an alternative universe. That there was something that could have happened but didn't happen because Israel was unfaithful, so they would never happen. So they're just filler now. They just can skip over them. You just get to past the Psalms and Proverbs and then just kind of skip to Matthew because the stuff in between is largely uh, an alternative universe, alternative reality. But we see that rather than that idea of Scripture, um, if you were to ask, well, would Messiah be saying the same thing today, that you live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God? 
And what we see in one of the apostolic writings in Revelation, a couple of key examples of this, Revelation 12, 17. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Yeshua. So one of the key characteristics of the day of the Lord people, people of God, is that they hold to the commandments of God and to the testimony of Yeshua. So that should be telling you what the testimony of Yeshua is, what with the commandments of God. Compatible, antagonistic to each other, or rather, they fit with each other. Because if they don't work with each other, how on earth is someone supposed to live? You live by the commandments of God, and then the testimony of Yeshua, which is supposed to abolish the commandments of God. How do you live like that? How do you, how do you hold to that? You'd be holding to these, these tensions in your head. One of the hallmarks of the postmodern world that we have today is that people can hold completely contradictory ideas at the same time. Completely contradictory ideas. And when you point that out to them, they're like, well, yeah, okay. I don't care. I, I like both of those ideas. Yes. I think it always goes back to the paradigms, a Hebrew paradigm and a Greek paradigm. And the Greeks um, think what they think is most important, and they argue and use logic to reason. But the Hebrew is all about cyclical, season, do-over, repeat, repeat. I think that what you're saying in the conflict is um, evident to me and my own family. I have a, a cousin's daughter that is um, teaching law for animal rights, mm. and she's done it in Harvard. She's starting a new program, and she's a devout vegan, won't wear shoes, have leather, everything, but in the same breath can argue for abortion. And so, yes. You know, it doesn't make sense. Right. And I, I was talking with Tammy about this. I had a conversation with uh, a relative of mine on that. Um, you know, this relative is a very big supporter of abortion rights and um, was also being very, um, saying, well, I can't understand how uh, these Christians can be so supportive of capital punishment and then be against abortion. Well, how does that how does that jive? And so I was saying, well, maybe you can help understand the, the, the point here on this is that at least we can start with the conversation that there is death involved in both of those. There is death of the baby. There is death of the convict. Death is happening in both. You've got to start with that idea. Then we can talk further because you can say death of the baby. Baby didn't do anything death of the convict the convict did egregious things that's why we are now you can make arguments about whether those determinations were valid whether they were fallacious whether they were trumped up or completely fabricated there's okay you can make all those kinds of things and then those um the aspects of bearing false witness then falls upon all the people that made that happen but the aspect is, is that there are people that have done horrifically terrible things to other people. And it's usually involving 
the taking of life of somebody else and versus someone who has done nothing. So then you weigh those two things together and say, yes, you must say that death is happening in both cases, but which would you rather be opposed to? So that is a, a starting point for the, the conversation with people on that. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a very difficult conversation, but yeah, it is, it is something. Now, one of the, the, that conversation went on further and like, okay, you have the realm of capital punishment. And you say, well, we want to work so this does not happen. So the, the execution of this person does not happen. Okay, well, then maybe we work on the other side of the equation. And you do all this that you can so that does not happen as well. Okay, we can talk about that, that we're, we're trying to keep this execution from happening to make sure that you, know, you keep appealing, 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 make sure that you've stamped out any sort of shenanigans that happen to make this execution happen. But then we need to do it on the other side too. To, I mean, what, what, what have we done with this? Have, you know, the sonogram, the offering adoption, the supportive services during the pregnancy, the aftercare, the support, and on and on and on, on it goes. You know, are you willing to do both of those things? You're so willing to work on the executioner's side well, what about on the other side? So, yes. I think that um, underneath it, there's a big business involved in mm. fetuses, and so it's profitable to someone. Yes. Yeah. Sadly so. And another example that we have, just finishing out this idea from Revelation just another second witness in Revelation here for Revelation 14.12. Here are the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and have their faith or their trust in Yeshua. So again, both of these things work together. They're not at odds with each other. And in the day of the Lord, both of these things will be important and both of these things will be determinants of who is really listening to heaven and who is not. So on to the next point here about why believers in Yeshua, whether they should care about Yom Kippur or not, that the Moedim, like the tabernacle, have always been shadows, or as they're called, zikaron, or memorials of the realities that are in heaven. And there are numerous examples that we have in scriptures of this. And that they are reminders of the God who was, the God who is, and the God who will be. And here are some examples that we have from Exodus chapter 25 and Exodus 26. According to all that I am going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of it, of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. That was verse 9, verse 40. See that you make them after the pattern for them, which was shown to you on the mountain. And then Chapter 26, verse 30. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to its plan, which you have been shown on the mountain. And then we see the corollary to that, Numbers chapter 8, verse 4. Now this was the workmanship of the lampstand, hammered with gold from its base to its flowers, its hammered work, according to the pattern which the Lord had shown Moshe, so he made the lampstand. And in Acts chapter 7, which you might recall, is what's the context there? Acts chapter 7, 
about someone making a testimony. Yes. Recalling the apostles, recalling what God had done, basically is a testimony to whom? Who were the apostles talking to? To the leadership, the leadership of Israel. So basically, you guys should know this, kind of very similar to what you see John chapter 3 when Yeshua is talking to Nicodemus. You are Israel's teacher, and you don't know this? So again, another reminder, hey, this is something that you should know. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moshe directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And this conversation with the leadership of Israel went on to say, okay, this was all a part of a pattern. We here, the apostles, the students of Yeshua, are telling you where these patterns are pointing to. So when we go on to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 4 through 6, now, if he, talking about Yeshua, on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moshe was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain, unquote. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. And we'll finish this, the conversation out here with this passage here. starts, now again, Hebrews, like, like um, Romans, is a long discussion, and it builds on itself through the whole thing. You know, in times past, when we've gone over this passage, Akharemot, we went through Hebrews 1 through 10 because it all fits together and it's a part of the same message. So we're dropping here in the midst of this conversation. But this conversation in Hebrews 1 through 10 is largely about the Day of Atonement. So that is what largely we have the commentary on, which is fantastic because a lot of our our brothers and sisters in um, conventional Judaism have struggled with what Yom Kippur means, especially after the temple was destroyed. But Hebrews is a long commentary on what that pattern that was shown Moshe on the mountain for the tabernacle and part of that being Yom Kippur, what that is all about and what it pointed forward to and what it fits in the context of. So when you get to the day of the Lord, and these are people who follow the commandments of God, meaning the Torah, meaning the instructions of the pattern, and the tabernacle, the temple, the priesthood, Yom Kippur, everything in there, then the testimony of Yeshua on top of that, fitting together, not fighting with each other, not as some theologians have said over time about the Sermon on the Mount having these six antitheses or, you know, you have heard it said, but I tell you. So, so Yeshua was at war with the Torah, fighting against the, the stuff that was in the Torah. Rather, we see that they work together. That the pattern is seeing its actual fullness. It's coming into its fullness.
So starting on here in Hebrews chapter 9, uh, verse 24, we're going to go through chapter 10, verse 9. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would, need to, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin, to those who are eagerly, who eagerly await him. For the law, since it has only uh, a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any, had any conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God, which is a quotation from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. After saying above, sacrifice and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. And what that first and second is referring to is if you just rewind the tape and go back to Hebrews 8, 7, 9, verse 1, and 9, verse 15, and 9, verse 18, you'll see that this discussion of what the first is. And you'll see a good translation will it'll often say the first covenant. But note that the covenant is in italicized in a lot of translations, the good ones. That's because it's not there. It just says, and the first and the first, the first, that was an interpretation by the particular translator that was saying, well, that's what it referred to was the covenant. But the context is what? The high priest. First priesthood, second priesthood, which is what the whole book of Hebrews is about. The high priest, but then there's the great high priest. And we see that introduced First in chapter 1, then also in chapter 4, that we have a great high priest, not one who doesn't know who we are, completely um, detached from who we are. Rather, we see the great foretelling of that. We Just a, a few Shabbats ago, we had gone through Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 52, 53, and seen the great prophecy of the suffering servant. That is the kind of high priest we have the one that suffered so much insult 
so much, took on our iniquities, took on our afflictions, took on our rejection, and still said, yes, and still said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Still in the midst of all that. And then says, not only just, Father, forgive them, but I will represent them. As the apostle um, Yochanan says there in his first letter, First John, and he's saying, yeah, we have an advocate before the Father when we screw up. He doesn't want us to screw up. He wants to point us to the life away from sins, transgressions, and iniquities. But if we do, we do fail. Who do we run to? Our lawyer. The great lawyer. The perfect lawyer, who's also the priest. Who represents us to heaven and say, okay, we can look at this schlub, or we can say, well, rather look at the lawyer, because the lawyer fully represents, not just gets paid and then good luck, but fully says, no, no. What this schlub was supposed to get, take it out on me, and actually had it taken out on him. So when we see here, kind of the, in this question of why should believers still care about Yom Kippur, that this, the new covenant includes this promise of a new heart and a removal of iniquity. Back in uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 9, and it talked about these sacrifices, there are reminders of sins year by year. Now, we've talked about this a number of times in this great Again, Romans being a long argument from beginning to end. One of the things that it builds to a crescendo, because he keeps asking this question over several chapters, you know, what purpose is the law then? Well, the law is holy and good. What purpose of the law? And it builds to a crescendo in chapter 7, where he says, compares himself to the law of God and says, well, the good that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, those are the things I do. And you see it builds to a crescendo. It's like, well, who can save me from this body of death? And how it ends? Blessed be Yeshua our Lord. And then it goes on into chapter 8, which is the, okay, how then do I live? It's like post-Yom Kippur. You've covered over sins, transgressions, and iniquities. You faced up to the law of God and realized with iniquities, you're toast because there is no offering for that except for Yom Kippur. So you've had that great covering over your iniquities with the great Yom Kippur offering and service of the Mashiach. So then, now what? Which is where chapter 8 comes in. And what is chapter 8 of Romans all about? Is the Spirit of God which comes in and transforms you transforms you over time. It's the way it worked back in the Torah days, you could say. It's the way it worked in the apostolic times. The way it works today, and as you read Revelation and the other apocalyptic books, that's the way it works in the day of the Lord as well, is that those who stand, those who endure to the end, are those who do what? They are transformed. They are the ones who stick close. They cleave to the Lord. 
So that is why it's hugely important what we have with the new covenant promise. And I quoted it many times, but it's always a good reminder again from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, and there's the corollary to this over in Ezekiel 36, verses 25 and 26. The Jeremiah 31 version here, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Yehuda, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out to the land of Mitzrayim. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. So we'll just stop there for a moment. So we just went through Pesach, Passover, the remembrance of that, the exit from the land. We're looking for, we're counting the days. Here we are on day 14, going towards day 50, day of Shavuot, Pentecost, to uh, there at the mountain to have this great remembrance of the covenant, entering into the covenant with God there at the mountain. So you see that this was a relationship, this covenant that was going to happen there at the mountain. But what happened at the mountain? Calf, the golden calf, the stuff related to the golden calf, everything that kind of led up to that situation. So a breach in the covenant. And as we continue to go on through our, our Torah cycle, we'll see how this breach ended up getting wider and wider and wider to the point where you see that the spies are going to enter the land and they have lost the trust in the one who took them out of the house of bondage, that they could not, that this one who took them out of the house of bondage could not take them into the land, into the land of rest. They lost the trust. They lost the faith. So it's one of the big things that Yeshua said related to the daily bread. He said there in the Gospel of Yochanan, it's like they ate the bread in the desert, but they still what? Died. Because they did not what? They did not marry that. They did not combine this thank you for the daily bread with trust in the one who provided the daily bread. That the one who provided the daily bread, even up to the point where they're getting ready to go into the land, could not then do the next part of taking them in and taking care of the big walls and the giants on the other end in the land. That that would not be too much for the one who gave them daily bread every day. So, the prophecy in Jeremiah 31 goes on, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Amen. So that's when we see here about this new covenant with the promise of a new heart and the removal of iniquity, that this is a memorial, the only memorial 
in the Torah about the removal of iniquity. And thus, the Yom Kippur, just like Passover, is a memorial of the new covenant. Yeah. So, yeah, Larry, did you have a comment or a question? No, I was just going to say, it seems like if someone asks you the question, why should we look at this anymore and say, what, you're, you're, you're completely sinless? That's why we need to keep paying attention to the, like the Yom Kippur, because we need forgiveness for the stuff that we've done in the last couple of minutes or last couple of weeks or since last year. Right, well, the, the, the question is, is, is a good one, because you'll, you'll probably get it from most of our brothers and sisters in the body of Messiah, the same question. Why should we still care about the, the Day of Atonement when you have Yeshua as the atonement for sins? Well, the thing is, is that just like what we saw in Revelation, that the people of the Day of the Lord are those that hold to the commandments of God and to the testimony of Yeshua, that those work together, not in opposition to each other, that thus... Yom Kippur is not in opposition to Yeshua, which is the whole point of the letter of Hebrews. They're not fighting against each other. Rather, that the death and resurrection of Yeshua is a whole part of the pattern of Yom Kippur. That's what the whole point of it was, what the whole point of everything is. So, thus, the memorials are memorials of what? The reminders, memorials, reminders of the work of Yeshua, the work of God on earth. Always was a part of the plan and will continue to be a part of the plan. Yes, Alex. Yeah, and it does lend itself to what we're talking about very early on today, which is a lot of times, even my old church, they're like, I don't need to learn the Old Testament. What for? Hey, Jesus forgave us. It's all good. So she's married to a chimp. That's her business. Jesus forgives her. Mm. So you forget the whole thing before that, right? And it gets reduced to a Jesus story. We all feel good, right? Mm. Is that all Christianity is at this point? Yeah, yeah. or you know why, why that sort of a thing is... Um, that whole thing gets back to the whole point of what marriage is to begin with, which is also a big thing that's ca- causing a lot of issues in today's society. A lot of the younger generations, not even knowing why they should even bother with marriage whatsoever, what point it is, because you know, if you just detach it from, from legal documents or tax breaks or this or that or the other, what, what, what good is it? So if you detach marriage from the lesson from the career of heaven and earth the one who made everything as to what the whole point of this lesson was then you start losing all of the other sorts of uh divisions and prohibitions as being hey you're walking far away from the plan here that we saw in leviticus 18 um yes uh, larry i was going to say you know that's once again this thing about Redemption and salvation. Mm. Yes, he redeemed us, but he who perseveres to the end, that one shall be saved. Yep. So, you're taken out of Egypt, then what? 
Are you ready to walk through the sea? Are you ready, ready to trust that the one will give you daily bread, give you water, deal with the giants, deal with the big walls that we all face in life from one degree or another? Are we willing to have that much trust, that much faith in the one who's taken us out to also take us in to the land of rest in the other end? I love that statement that he made. It says, has my arm gotten too short? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's a great little bit of comedy there. <laughs> yes. So um, any other thoughts before we move on and close things out here? Rose, did you have a comment or question uh, or something? probably left me by now. Oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> I, I, it was I, a good one, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I get, I'm, I'm sitting here next to Larry. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I totally get what... What he's saying because he'll have a thought, and if he can't get it out right now, it's yeah. But I was just saying that uh, my, I guess, part of it was the fact that we need we need reminders. Uh, yes, you know, we can get so full of ourselves thinking, ah, oh, Christ died on the cross; he did it all for me. I can just go on about my business; it's all good. I'm gonna I'm gonna make it to the kingdom, and I don't think it works like that. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I, think, I think we have to walk with God on a daily basis, and yes. we have to be aware of what he said. I mean, this, these, pa- these pieces of paper, or all these words would not have been put down on paper if he didn't want you to read them, <laughs> if he didn't want you to understand them. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, so I mean, I, I think uh, in today's world, we take things way too lightly. Hmm. It's a serious thing to make a commitment to God. Yeah, but you know the the thing that we face more and more in society is um, is there a God? Is there a Creator? Because it gets even more fundamental than that. Thus, if you don't understand what that question is, is there a God? Is there a Creator? Then the words from the Creator that take no meaning otherwise anyway. So thus, that's one of the the great. Um, lessons for the day of the lord is to worship him who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them it's one of the great last messages to the world so as we kind of think about this and like the the now what period with yom kippur you know we realize that we're just we're entering a time here where we just have to bind together closer and closer as a body because we are entering a time just like our ancestors did before us, where the forces that are going to just tear us apart are going to get stronger and stronger and stronger. Tear our families apart, tear our friendships apart, this and that and the other. So people of God really faced these attacks many, many, many times before. You read about them both in the Bible. You also see in the history of the people of God, the, the various persecution waves that have come and what larry talked about enduring to the end can you go through each of these experiences and then out the other side while still clinging to your faith in the lord so any questions that we have in today's society like people might say well you know but you don't understand they stole the election. They're, they're putting someone into power who's diabolical. And we just can't let this go on in a country that's ruled by the Constitution and dedicated to God. Well, we just also 
have to remember, just like we read in Isaiah 53, that the Mashiach <laughs> endured a stolen election, and we see it in the Gospels. You know, do you want our Abbas, or do you want Yeshua? So that was a stolen election because you see that the leadership of the time whipped the people up to vote for Barabbas instead. But he would later ask the Father to forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Not only the ones that finally carried out the crucifixion there, but any others that wanted to take a different path. So if he would do that, then so should we. So one of the things about Yom Kippur is we need to learn to get over it. That if he is willing to discharge these things, these insults that we've hurled against him, then we should discharge these insults and such that we face ourselves. Apostle Paul says, well, you're facing someone in a dispute in court with a fellow believer, wouldn't it just be better to be defrauded than to drag the whole matter and before some secular court or get other people involved outside the body of Messiah and then they're going to start thinking, well, these people can't figure out them, themselves. Well, what is this whole kingdom of God thing? If people of God can't figure it out, that the kingdom of God hasn't changed their hearts, they're stabbing each other in the back, then <laughs> what, what, what purpose does it serve for me? I've got better things to do. But, you know, you get these situations, well, you don't understand, people are spreading lies about me. We just can't let this go on in the body of Messiah. I mean, one of the reasons why we end up here is that we had people that were saying all kinds of stuff about us and what was going on, what we were teaching, what we were saying, what we were leading, and this and that. And so, you could just hold on to those things. But remember, all of the slights and the slander, remember in the Gospels recorded about the trial of Yeshua and all of the slander that was going on there against his apostles. You read about that in the book of Acts. All those slanders that were going on, all the slanders, you read that back in the prophets and in the historical writings that are in the Tanakh about all the slights and terrible things that were going on against the people of God? Well, if the Messiah could then cover over those things and say, okay, I'm willing to cover over those kinds of iniquities, and if he would do that, then so should we. So again, we need to learn one lesson of forgiveness is to then get over it. I know in my own family, um, there was once a catchphrase that we heard often about, well, I'm going to take it to my grave. Well, is that what we as people of God do with our grudges? We're going to go into our next thing, um, our next Torah section, Kedoshim, with Leviticus 19. Now, we, we often quote, and it's even in the Gospels, about the golden rule, you know, do unto others as you want them to do unto you. But in Leviticus 19.18, the full version of it is, do not hold a grudge against your brother. Rather, love your brother as yourself. So, do not take it to your grave. 
in as far as it is for you, live at peace. That's what the Apostle Paul says, live at peace with other people. But your side is to do what? What we see in the Beatitudes leading up to the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. Happy are you, and you're a peacemaker, for they shall be called the sons of God. So that is one great lesson of the, okay, now what? So instead of going through life in like a yo-yo, going from the realm of God, the holy people down, down in the muck, back up again, down in the muck, back up again, on purpose, we can look to not be in that cycle anymore, to be peacemakers, to be those who are humble and the other aspects of the Beatitudes. Yes, um, Rose, you have a, a comment or a question? Uh, the only way to have that peace would be to uh, institute Matthew 18. I mean, if there's something going on within a group, uh, I think that's where Matthew 18 comes sure in. Sure, it does. You know, if I, if I have all with you, I need to go to you. Yeah. If you won't listen, then I need to bring somebody and go back again. And if that still won't happen, then I need to enter in with the church. I mean, that's what, that's what Matthew yeah. 18 teaches us. But to so the, the, the important part is, 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 to, is to be able to work things out amongst uh, each other. Right. But then in the end of that, then you just have the um, <laughs> vengeance is mine, thus says the Lord. At that point, you just have to say, okay, um, if it won't work out, you just have to let to those things go. You give it to God okay. on that. That's why the apostle advises, as far as it's in your power, live at peace with people. There's some things that are just not in our power. Some people don't want to reconcile. I've seen it in my own family that you've had uh, people that just will hold on to grudges, hold on to slights will not ever let it go. And those things I've seen that emotionally, physically drain you and, and just dig at you to just let these things go. Because otherwise, we can come up with all kinds of reasons to divide about this or that or the other. So not have to create more reasons for it, that's for sure. Any last thoughts as we close out here? Hopefully, this is something that you can... Talk with your brothers and sisters in the Messiah who will also have the same question as to, you know, well, why should we care about Yom Kippur when you have the Messiah has covered over our sins, has atoned for our sins? All right, close out with prayer. Father God, we thank you and praise you for giving us these great lessons. We thank you for all that you've done for us in covering over our sins, transgressions, and iniquities. And Father, we thank you for taking us, all of us were broken people, and helping to put us back together. We thank you for lifting us up from where we were before. Guide us in being as merciful on other people as you've had mercy on us. And Father, we just pray for the peace of Yerushalayim to go out into all the world and to all the places where people are trying to dominate other people, to destroy, to kill, to maim, to confuse, to disrupt. Father, we thank you for 
the great mercy you've shown us and also how you've shown us the way out. We thank you for all these things in the name of your Son, Yeshua. Amen. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.